Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for the download today. Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. Also, as a reminder, you've got about a week and a half to register for the annual What People Want From Work survey. This is an employee engagement survey we run every single year. It's absolutely free to participate in it. You get a free report in the end. All you need to do is send out the survey link to your employees with the email template we provide. And we collect all the survey results and we produce a report for you once the survey closes. Sign up at zeniumhr.com. Okay, today's episode features Carolyn Suara. Carolyn is the author of Evolve, The Path to Trauma-Informed Leadership. And in this episode, we're discussing Carolyn's personal journey, which is a tough one. She navigated her husband's terminal kidney cancer, and she talks about her path to healing. And we talk through just the impact trauma has on us in the workplace, at home, and just how all those things are interconnected. And ultimately, we're talking about how leaders and managers can be more compassionate and human-centered around their people. So there's a lot of great stuff in here. It's heartfelt, emotional for me at times, just hearing her story. And I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Enjoy today's episode with Carolyn Suara, the author of Evolve, The Path to Trauma-Informed Leadership. Enjoy. It is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We're going to talk about the book that you wrote called Evolve, The Path to Trauma-Informed Leadership. And in the introduction, you were talking about as the pandemic grew, you had heard concern from leaders and probably other people you work with about burnout, being overrun with anger, sadness, grief, and people who really can't find a way out of the chaos. I think everybody had a a very different time during that pandemic, whether it's home struggles, maybe loss of a loved one, whatever their situation is, but they're bringing those things to work. And I think it's cause for burnout and stress and all that. You said that you could see this in yourself and the stories that you heard. You mind sharing your story? You got a unique one. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad we're starting off with that one, Brandon, because when the pandemic hit, I kept saying to myself, this isn't my first pandemic. This isn't my first pandemic. And I I wasn't born in 1918, nor was I alive in 1918. So I haven't been through a pandemic, but I wasn't able to find the right word. All I could use was pandemic. And, And really what it was, was just a lot of emotional overwhelm, right? We're all being locked in our houses. Like what's happening next? Are we safe? Are we not? We all had different levels of privilege by which to navigate. And so when I thought of what was happening, I'm like, oh, no problem. No problem, Carolyn. You got this. You've been through way worse. And so, you know, what's the story then that that led up to to that, that, you know, I I would say has made me guys such a tough cookie. Not that I want to be called a tough cookie because cookies are good to eat, not to be. Um, But uh, (laughs) really, like, here's the gist of my story. Married for a year. 
starting off uh, a great corporate career in a big multinational pharmaceutical, uh, six months pregnant with her first child, and my husband gets diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer. I wasn't a healthcare professional then, still not now, but I knew enough to know that that was not going to be a cancer that was going to allow my boys to see their dad for much of their life. So he lived for six years, which is pretty incredible given how fast that type of cancer gets into your body. So we had two boys. Um, Both of the boys came into the world with a parent who was fighting a terminal illness. And so their formative years between, you know, birth and, and age six were among a lot of joy and happiness, um, but also amongst a lot of sadness and and grief. And so that was a very defining time of my life that really um, I just learned to cope and manage through. And, you know, during that time that he was sick, I was his primary caregiver, went to every single appointment, didn't miss a single appointment. And at one point he was receiving weekly treatments. Um, I got two promotions and I started a business. All non-healthy, by the way. That's all non-healthy behavior, which we'll get to. That was a coping mechanism for yourself. Yeah, that total coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah. And if I back back up that story, even, you know, 30 years earlier, uh, you know, I grew up in a family. My mom raised me. She did everything. She was awesome, made me feel safe, gave me a great home. And she left my dad when I was three. And what I didn't know is that my dad was an alcoholic. And so my ability to appease and please others and keep things, you know, keep the stress level low was just a way of being that I had learned how to navigate through. I mean, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, it had to have been so hard, not only for you, but for your kids as well to go through something as traumatic as that. How do you feel like, I mean, if you look back, how did this traumatic event that you went through change your professional life, your, your, your personal life. I'm sure you're trying to pick up all the pieces. Not easy. Yeah. It's, well, here's honestly, here's the first thing my, you know, my friend Leanne, she'll tell you this when I told her and I'll never forget telling her sitting in an office at at our, I worked with her, we were friends before, but she got me um, into this company and I looked at her And I think back now, I can't believe I said this, but, you know, here I am six months pregnant telling her that my husband's been diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer and I could see her start to tear up and I'm like, stop, there's no room for tears. That's, so that pretty much explains how I navigated through the six years of his illness and probably for the few years after. It's not that I was trying to be a jerk. I just didn't know any other way. And so it was like, well, one parent is really physically ill. There's no space for me to go down to. And that's just, honestly, that's just the only way I knew how to survive. So a lot of people would say to me, oh, you're so strong. And inside I'm thinking, yep, that's just, that's just what you do. And it turned into a lot of like overachieving. Like I said, like I started a business in there, not just a small business, like opened up a school in the community to um, have Paul's sort of legacy live on. So, you know, that comes with a lot of stuff and, and bad choices. Like, hey, let's some bad choices. That's a different podcast for another time. But like some really bad choices were made during that time. I honestly didn't realize that it was trauma. I just thought it was bad luck and I'm strong. We're going to make it through. And I think, you know, I look back now, I really underestimated the impact it was going to have on the boys 
because I grew up with a very dysfunctional relationship with my father. So my own frame of reference was, well, gosh, you won't have to, you won't have to deal with that. Um, and it really sucks, but Hey, I'm raising tough kids. So we're all going to just buck up and be okay. Like, oof not a very functional way to deal with it. So, you know, when the pandemic hit, that was really an opportunity for me to reflect. Um, Because when the pandemic hit, um, Paul would have been gone for, I'm doing the math really quick, probably, yeah, about nine years at that point, and really reflect on that time in between. And yeah, it was a lot. It was, there was a lot going on there that I didn't understand how to process. So much of this is self-awareness, right? Like you, you were probably not understanding the trauma, how to deal with it. You thought, you know, being strong. I mean, you you had two boys that you're trying to be strong for and, and move forward. That was probably the best path forward. But, you know, with, with trauma, you don't deal with it. It comes spilling out in some way. And it probably looks different for everybody. Did that ever happen to you where it was just like a moment, like following his passing that like, it was just too much. And it became like it came out in whether it's anger or sadness or yeah. what was your moment that you had to really deal with this. Honestly, the way it came out for me, Brandon, is I just kept pushing. I just kept pushing. So a year after he passed, um, I took a transfer opportunity to go out to the middle block of Canada, um, Saskatchewan. It's like 2% of, of Canadian business. <laughs> so not a lot of people give it a lot of attention. It was such a wonderful time for us as a family, the three of us. I knew nobody. And at the time, people were like, what are you doing? And I was like, this is the best thing ever, um, following my gut. But I was still convinced that I was going to follow this corporate path and be successful and become a VP and go global. Didn't quite know how I was going to do it, but if other people could do it, I could do it. So did I have a moment? There were certainly a few moments in Saskatchewan where I, because I had nobody out there, where it was just very humbling. There were a lot of tears at night. Um, Like I just, nothing, I can honestly say, like, I don't lose. Like that was just in my mind. I'm like, it's okay. I can make this. I've got these two great kids. I'm lucky. I've got a great job. Like I kept focusing on what was good and just didn't give myself the space to, I look back now to grieve. So, you know, what was the eye opener? For me, well, it would have been um, 11 years later when the pandemic hit and I'm dealing with two teenagers and a blended family, you know, really blessed to have found somebody else to share my life with. And so he took the boys in. And so realizing like, man, a blended family's hard. And I had since um, left my corporate world and started my own business and just realizing these patterns. And so there was a moment the day that the pandemic was declared, remember where I was. I remember the challenges just as a family we were having. And I'm like, I'm in the center of all this. Like, I need to figure some stuff out here. So that, what was that, 11 years later is kind of my aha moment. When you were talking about it in the book, I think it was in the introduction, you said you started writing this as a memoir. And so you're probably doing, doing a lot of self-reflection of that time. But then you shift, made the shift and turn it into a leadership Facebook. So what, why the shift? Well, the memoir was called The Perfect Widow. And, and, and I thought that that would be a really, you know, gosh, like who the hell wants to be a perfect widow, let alone a widow? Like that's how (laughs) these patterns were just so, if everyone's going to do this right, it's going to be me. And it was so focused on what I thought other people wanted me to be. So the, the book was, 
really a, a book to my boys about, hey, you're, you're, you're on the precipice of going to be young men. I don't want you to carry my baggage and my story. And I want you to go into the next phase of your life unencumbered by my stuff. So that's the gift I wanted to give to them. And, and then I do in my business, I do culture and leadership work. And, you know, so often what's right in front of us, we can't see. And so through the guidance of a really gifted um, NLP coach, neuro-linguistic processing coach, she kindly had said, hmm, maybe there's something bigger here. And there was, like now I look back, I'm like, oh my God, of course there was. And so that led me into this topic of the book, which you know, not many people talk about in the corporate world. And I just felt like this is this is really where I can position and share a few things if people are willing to listen. I mean, so much of what you describe in the book, especially in the early chapters, it's the self-awareness, self-reflection. And I think even leaders have the hardest time doing that for themselves, you know, and uh, being vulnerable too. So asking themselves the, the hard questions and then also being vulnerable with the people around them. How do we build those skills? Because the, for a lot of people, I don't think we're trained to be vulnerable, to self-reflect. What, what are the tips you have for that? Well, here are the two tips, and I made a whole model uh, in my book about it. I call it the Evolved Leader Model. I think there's two things. First of all, understanding inherently that our intention and our impact are never going to align, ever. And that's because of personality structures, and we don't need to dig into all of that. But when you know that as a basis and just recognize, like, the best intentions are not always going to land the way you want them to, doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means that there's an opportunity there. So when we understand our reactivity patterns. And so that's what I talk about, you know, reactivity patterns and then our ability to be in connection with others, our ability to see people, to hear them, to value their experience as what it is they're sharing versus judging. Those two things, um, I believe, are at the core of self-awareness uh, and and are taken, you know, sort of, I love to read, you know, have a few academic things behind my name as well. But at the core, how do we keep it really simple? We're perceiving the world through a certain lens. And how stuck are we to that lens? Most of us, 85% of us are really stuck into that lens. And we don't even give any space to think that anybody's going to see it any other way. And, you know, when something happens to you in your life or you're met with struggle, some people choose to do something with that and want to learn from it. And not everybody does. And that's, that's okay. That's that's totally fine. Hey, it took me many years to get to this place. That's really, I think, the foundation of leadership. When we look at our organizations in today's day and age, three years after that grand year of 2020 that broke the, the you know broke the door open on a lot of things, we aren't going to find our way through in a way that is going to see everybody for who they are and what they are until we have a level of awareness. And you'll notice that I didn't say there about who's right and who's wrong. It doesn't matter what side we're on. We can't hear each other right now because there's so much noise around us. And there's just a lot of emotional heaviness that we're not able to navigate through right now. Right. And you, you talked earlier about how trauma is not really talked about in the workplace at all. So what is this idea of trauma-informed leadership, what does that mean? The word, the, the, the concept of trauma-informed care has been around for a while. 
And so it's been around in the field of medicine. It's been around in the field of education. So it's nothing new per se. And this notion, though, of trauma-informed care in the workplace, like they just really don't sound like they go together, right? You don't really hear the words care and trauma along with a corporate workplace. It's sort of like, leave that at home. It doesn't impact your work. The thing is, is it does impact your work. And so with the pandemic happening in 2020 as sort of the key event that you know broke everything open, what I realized was we now have an opportunity to say unequivocally, we've all been part of a collective trauma. And I felt that there was time now to introduce that word because now no one's going to disagree. Now, the part about trauma-informed care is it's not about knowing what someone's trauma is or comparing that whole thing. Trauma-informed leadership is really about learning to create space that is safe and doesn't um, activate Uh, a stress response or um, a response that makes somebody feel unsafe. And here's the thing, Brandon, safety isn't about a checklist all the time. Obviously, there's physical um, safety elements we need to um, adhere to, but our nervous systems are constantly scanning the environment. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, it was to see if we were going to be the next meal for something. Now it's scanning for all sorts of other threats, be that emotional, mental, physical, um, social. And there is a lot going on in that in that realm that can activate a response that makes us feel not safe. So enter in psychological health and safety. Um, but at the core, if I'm really going to simplify it, Safety is not just about um, a conscious feeling. It's also about unconscious stuff that is in our body. And if we're really serious, this is why I think it's time to bring it into the workplace. If organizations and leaders are serious about living into the values, being truly inclusive and diverse and honoring their DEI commitments, then we need to understand what trauma is, what it isn't, And how to really, truly create spaces of belonging. Because we cannot get there by just thinking that we're all fine. Right. What did you mean when you wrote that there's a widening gap between managers and employees? You wrote that in the book, and I'm curious what, what that meant. There's a widening gap. Well, I think it's on a whole lot of, and I don't remember what particular chapter you're referring to, but, you know, this notion of what needs to happen to get things done. So, you know, being a leader right now is, I think, the hardest time ever because you've got pressures from above. So, you know, we'll just talk about the middle manager right now, but you've got pressures from like a director level or VP level, C-suite to perform. And then you've got your team and you've got the pressures of life. Of, I can't come in today because I've got an ailing parent or I can't come in today. I'll, I'll put myself back in, you know, a situation that I had a few years ago. Can't come in. I'm the only parent or um, I had to take my husband to an appointment, or just the life, the life situations. So these managers have have it coming from all levels. But what's really, I think, difficult is this reality of the people that they're working with and for really um, are having to deal with life circumstances that aren't that are impacting how they perform at work. How do you get performance? with heart when you realize there's so much going on for people. And so that that um, disparity, I think, that's happening between managers and leaders is, how can you understand me if all you're doing is you want me to perform more? 
And then leaders are like, what they're, I mean, they're, I mean, there's lots of studies coming out and I can't reference one off the top of my head. I think Gallup released one recently. Is it Gallup or McKinsey? But basically showing that, you know, the higher up you are, uh, closer you are to the sweet C-suite, the more out of touch you are with what's really happening. And that's only continuing to show up in the data. So again, how are we going to make this really change? How are we going to change our workplaces and see these burnout rates not continue to soar even higher. It seems like we need more connection. We need more personal relationships with our people. And I think like, even if it's in a manager employee relationship, I think there's still like questions we can ask to seek to understand like what, what they're going through. And they may not want to share everything about what's going on, but I think like that's how business is done. It's found, it's founded on trust and relationships and that's how we get stuff done. But also, like, isn't work better when we have connections? <laughs> it is. Well, and so here's where I circle back, Brandon. Like, if, if I were to go back to, you know, the years when Paul was really sick and, like, I was a good manager. I was, I was really good with people. Was I the best manager? No, I wasn't. So this is where I'll come back to reactivity patterns and that gap between intent and impact. And, and I talk about it in the book through the three centers of intelligence is we end up, um, when we're stressed and when we don't have a lot of energy, when we're tired, we go to the patterns that are going to cause us the least amount of cognitive load, the ones that we know best. They're not always healthy. And so that is uh, when you understand your reactivity pattern, you are able to observe it with a bit more objectivity and be like, oh, me inserting myself into everybody's business and asking how I can help might look really good on the outside, but in fact, it's really not because I'm forgetting about myself and I make everybody else's problems my problems to deal with. And oh, 11 years in, you realize you haven't dealt with your grief. So that was me talking about myself there. So these reactivity patterns aren't all behaviorally based and, and make us look like jerks. They actually can make us look really good in, in, a, in a workplace, right? Like do, working really late, being able to manage a high level workload, and then being able to get it all done at home as well. There's a breaking point for everybody in there. So, so to me, the missing piece is how do we understand those reactivity patterns so that we can close the gap between our intent and our impact? You described, I think it's another stressful point in your life, personal and professional life, where you felt like your body is falling apart. I don't know if it's like stress level was at a level and then maybe you had some health things going on. I've felt like this before. I've I dealt with, I had back surgery last year and I felt like my whole world was falling apart, clouded my judgment. I was moody, like you name it. Like I just, I felt like too, like my body was physically, literally falling apart. But like, if you think of those moments, you've, you've felt like that. What are some ways we can gain insight from our body so that we can make better choices and take action on it? So I believe that we have three centers of intelligence. So I'm, I'm taking from the Enneagram personality system when I, when I reference that, which means that we all have an ability to use our heart center, which is relationally based and passion based. We have an ability to take from our head center, which is objective and database. And we have an ability to perceive and learn from our body center, which is based in instinct and sensations, which we gather from our nervous system. And our nervous system has five senses, fully able to operate at its capacity. You know, we've got uh, sight, hearing, smelling, touching, 
what I, I'm missing one of them. Um, but the big ones being what we see and what we hear. So our ability to be integrated and, and use those centers in a balanced way is what is going to allow us as leaders to show up. So how do we bring in the balance of our nervous system? We have to give more space for a little bit more stillness, a little bit more quiet, um, and a little bit of space. All things that, you know, raising my kids at a young age with the situation I was in, I'm like, I've got no time for that. It will catch up with you as it did for me. You know, I, I went off on a stress leave when two years before Paul died, I, I couldn't walk one day. Couldn't get, I could barely, I had done a 10 kilometer run. Cause you also, that's what you do. You train for a 10 K run when you've got all that, but my body, I just like, your emotions are going to go somewhere. So, you know, if we don't deal with this emotional wounding, this emotional overload, that's what trauma is, by the way, it's going to go somewhere. So it goes into our body. So what, how can we start to integrate our body more? Take mindful moments. I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, you're going to have to do 20 minutes a day of, of mindful meditation and sit there and, mm, hey, if you can get there, awesome. But, you know, you could go for a walk and you could activate one sense and think, mm, what am I hearing right now? What am I hearing a minute later? Or if I'm washing the dishes feel the water on my hands. What am I smelling? What am I seeing? These moments of, of being in the present gives that nervous system just a little bit of space to come out of this stress state that we might be in. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is why you wrote this statement in the book. You said when you're describing trauma, you said your past is more present than you think. And I thought that was a super powerful statement because I think like just like you were describing with your work, you like kind of immersed yourself into work. You ran a 10 K to like kind of a, I don't know if you're, it was coping mechanism. You're avoiding in some ways. Right. And if you didn't stop and pause, like you're just describing for me just now, you'll never see the trauma bubbling up. You got it. You got again, intent and impact. Like I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. And, and again, it's not that I was doing anything wrong. It's just, it's a coping mechanism. And the thing with trauma is it's going to look different for everybody. So, you know, in that world, from what I understand, speaking with um, the different professionals is there's not even a shared common definition of trauma. There's a lot of different descriptions about it. Um, and, and one thing we know too, is that there's not a list to say, Hey, here's what it is. Here's what it isn't. So when you have something that's kind of ambiguous like that, how do you, how do you deal with it? Right. We like predictable things, but what we do know is that that emotion needs to go somewhere. And so Besser, Bessel van der Kolk, I was, I think I said his name right there. I get those consonants mixed up. He wrote a book called the body keeps score. That was pretty groundbreaking that really started to, at least in the mainstream, recognize trauma, not as a cognitive event, but as something that your body does as a healthy way to cope for something with something that you weren't able to handle on your own. Um, and so for me, you know, the past of growing up with a dysfunctional relationship with my dad, I just thought, you know, once I got married, it'd be done. An interesting point I don't even think I wrote this in the book. Maybe I did. Is my dad died three weeks before Paul did. I don't think I wrote that in the book because you probably would remember that. Um, which again, like, hello, I didn't even, 
didn't even think it was an important part, or at least didn't want to put it in there. You know, I'd been kind of running from this really dysfunctional relationship with him forever. And my way of dealing was that I'll just give him what he needs and then sweep it under the carpet. Well, you know, within the matter of four weeks, I lost two very prominent male figures in my life. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't say shouldn't, I don't like to should. Waiting for somebody to get out of your life is not a way to deal with the emotion. And that's, that's what happened to me. In the book, you talk about the four F's. Talk about how leaders could use these. I mean, people will recognize what they are, but like, how can leaders use these to understand more about themselves and also about their people? Maybe observing their people so they can be there for them. Yeah. So the four F's are, they are when our body is experiencing too much stress and might perceive a bit of danger. So, you know, you've probably heard of them, fight, flight, fawn, uh, which is, isn't always one people know about, but that's sort of more appeasing and then freezing. So fight or flight, we often hear. What's helpful for, I believe, people to know is that when that response is activated, it's, it's your body trying to, to protect you. Your brain is seeing something or hearing or smelling or whatever. So it is good to pay attention to it. And so these these responses don't indicate that there's something necessarily wrong. It could be a very healthy response to a situation that is unsafe. However, when they seem to be happening time and time and time again in situations that might not necessarily be perceived as threatening by a whole lot of other people, then there there could be an opportunity to explore something in an understanding. So, you know, in the book, I've, I give a few examples. So, you know, the fight response, for example, might look like arguing in a meeting and being extremely dug in and not creating any space to hear what anybody else is saying. And, you know, we've, I think, probably all been involved in a meeting or two where somebody gets a little bit out of hand emotionally. Again, it's just a stress response. Um, if you're feeling overly intense with an emotion, if you maybe insult others or really want to blame others, that could also be an indicator. Um, fawning, I fawned a lot. And fawning looks like just a really easy agreement or being quiet. You know, there's this notion of I have to be excessively polite and helpful. And if I'm not, I'm not going to be safe. Again, I'm not saying that every time somebody does this, that that is a really bad thing, but just something to look for. And if it's happening all the time, then perhaps, you know, there might be something more for individuals to explore. And again, bring that self-awareness into the scene. What is an evolved leader? You talk about this throughout the book. Uh, what are some of the principles for being an evolved leader? There's, there's two things I'll say. So an evolved leader recognizes a few things. They recognize the connection or the, the interconnectedness between safety, authenticity, and consistency. So one of the biggest gifts as a leader you can give people is to have a consistent approach to how you deal with people. You know, sometimes, and I'll go back to myself. It's one thing I know as a leader, I was really good at 
people always knew what they were going to get. I was never going to go off on anybody. They knew that I could hear them and create a safe space. So consistency is huge. Um, safety. Can I say, am I going to be judged? Can I say what needs to be said? Will that experience be honored or is it going to be judged or told it's wrong? So, uh, you know, that creating safety, safety means I'm going to honor your experience for what it is and not tell you you're wrong or not tell you something different. And then authenticity. So this is an interesting one. I don't think we can truly find authenticity until we do a whole lot of deep self-awareness. And to me, authenticity lies in that space between perfection and imperfection. But it's a quest and... A lot of people in our population cannot be authentic because different identities, different, you know, different races are not going to be accepted. So asking something, somebody to bring their true self to work with all the systemic challenges that we have, not exactly fair either. So that's why I say the connection between all those three. The three elements of an evolved leader, one is self-awareness. So if you want to be an evolved leader, there needs to be some sort of process in your world, be it with a coach, without, be it with a professional psychotherapist, whomever, but to help you deepen that perception, that gap between intent and impact. The second one is self-regulation, which is really understanding your emotions and using them as data, because that's really all emotions are. They are data to help us. And then the third one is co-regulation. And so, like I said earlier, our nervous systems are always talking to each other. Every time we come into contact, like no one's ever going to leave your presence neutral. Your nervous system is either going to say, oh, okay, or mm, not sure. And and what co-regulation is really about that, co-regulation is also, um, Katie Kurtz, I think it was Katie that said this, so she's a really, I think, a great leader in the space of trauma-informed care and facilitation. She referenced, I think it was her, about being well-resourced. And what that means is how I show up and how my nervous system is, if I'm in a calm, regulated state, I'm able to co-regulate and be well-resourced to allow my nervous system to create a place of safety. If I'm running, running fast and hard and I'm showing up in meetings like, all right, and, and just like kind of on the edge of, of hyper, <laughs> hyper vigilant or hyper, I guess hyperactive, it's going to create a level of anxiety and pressure as well. So yeah, self-awareness, self-regulation and co-regulation. Being an evolved leader or becoming one is quite the journey, I'm sure for a lot of people. So what are some regular practices that leaders can follow to, to get on that path? I talked a little bit uh, you know, about those two earlier, getting out and really giving yourself some space to allow that body center of intelligence to whew, take a beat uh, and, and create a little bit of space. So whatever that looks like for you. So for some people, that might be movement. That might mean going to a gym. It might mean going for a walk. When we're doing it, though, to create a kind of calmness in our body versus, oh my gosh, I got to go to the gym and I've got to do the workout because I have to lose 10 pounds. Or like when it's associated to things like that, we're kind of losing the essence of movement. Like going for a walk now, Brandon, I don't take a podcast with me. I don't take earphones. 
And, and I used to, because it was all about what do I need to do next? What do I need to check off my list? And I love my walks. They're so different. I hear things that I never heard before and I try and stop the mind from racing. So I focus on a sense. So, you know, getting the movement um, for some people, it's mindfulness and for others, it's mindful connections. So those three M's were coined by uh, Sharon K. Ball and Renee Siegel. They wrote the book, Reclaiming You, and they really talk about our dominant centers of intelligence. And depending on what your dominant center is, those are three different ways that you can create a bit of space and connection to find a little bit of stillness. So those are some things, you know, music can certainly do it for people. Art, you know, that coloring, you know, fad that we saw several years ago and thing in 2013, you know, it creates space, anything creative, anything where we are allowing some vulnerability in, some imperfection in, and doing it with intention to just block out, just block out the noise. Well, I've so appreciated this discussion. We've we've covered a lot. I appreciate you telling the story too, and just giving people insight into your your world as well. Uh, what did I miss? Like, what like do you want to put a bow on this? Like, what what's something you want to leave leaders with as we close out the discussion? I don't think you missed a lot. Here's what the bow I would I would put on it is: you wouldn't walk by a thousand dollars lying on the floor. And I believe by ignoring our nervous systems as leadership tools, we are walking by more than $1,000 worth on the floor. And so if we could use our head and our heart, which, you know, we have that conversation often, how can we bring our nervous system into this conversation and, and see that as like the third sort of piece of what creates a fully rounded, integrated leader. So your nervous system is a leadership tool. Are you letting it run you or are you working with it to be balanced? Carolyn, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people connect with you, learn more about what you're doing, get your book, any, anything you want to point people to? CarolynSwear.com. Everything, everything's there. You can find out more about the book there, about the programs that I offer. Um, any kind of speaking um, is there as well. And I'm on social, so predominantly LinkedIn and Instagram. So you can find me at Carolyn Suara. My guest today has been Carolyn Suara. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Brandon. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.